Ian, we're hoping to cover the uh, the NHS cyber attack a little bit on this week's podcast. Can I just ask you to explain uh, briefly what it's about, please? Basically, uh, it's to do with computers. Someone has uh, hacked uh, into the, um, the the computers, and this is very very bad. It's known as um, mal uh, mal malaprop, and they will get a lot of bits out. I think I'd better hand you over to one of our younger correspondents. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we are having an election healthcare special. First up, you may have noticed that this week there has been an absolutely enormous NHS story concerning ransomware. A lot of uh, computers which were running old operating systems being taken hostage operations cancelled, NHS thrown into crisis. Now, the Eye has been onto this story since 2014, and I managed to speak to the Eye's tech correspondent, Emma Woolacott, about exactly what we knew and when. It was back in 2009 that Microsoft stopped doing mainstream support and warned everybody that uh, even security patches for things like this would, would be stopped in April 2015. The government decided to uh, carry on a special support arrangement with Microsoft, uh, mm. which was going to cost it five and a half million for another 15 months to just buy itself a little bit more time, basically. But it was always the case that as soon as that 15 months was up, the security patches would stop. And then whenever hackers discovered another vulnerability, these machines would be wide open to it. Departments were supposed to use that time to upgrade, but nobody gave them any money to do it. And it just basically pretty much didn't happen. Wow. I mean, 2009 is a long time ago now that this has been seen coming down the tracks. Well, it certainly is. You, you, you can't say they didn't have any warning. Is it only computers which are running Windows XP which have been affected? Yes, there's a, there's a couple of other sort of very obscure bits of, or rather more obscure bits of software that are vulnerable, but newer versions of Windows. This vulnerability was actually discovered back in March. It was discovered that the NSA, National Security Agency in the States, had found it, kept quiet about it and used it to develop hacking tools of their own. But this was discovered back in March. And back in March, Microsoft sent out a security pack for the vulnerability, but this patch was only available for newer versions of Windows, not XP. Ah, okay. So it is specifically the XP thing that's yeah, a problem. Yeah. And you wrote about this first in 2014, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was very obvious at the time that, that something needed to be done long term uh, to fix this problem. And it was it was also very clear that, that nobody was planning ahead for it at all, a, apart from, as I say, buying that extra 15 months. And once they ran out, that was it? That was it. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, obviously, a lot of machines have been upgraded in the time since, but there was there was no coherent national plan and a heck of a lot of machines still weren't. So what is the situation now, now that a patch has been issued? Are machines with Windows XP on safe or are they temporarily safe or are they not really safe? Uh, it depends what they've done. So Microsoft, despite saying it wasn't going to send out any more security patches for XP, this has obviously been such a, a huge event that it did send one out on Friday. So hopefully, it would be nice to think that um, everybody since then has, has actually run the security patch, but they may not have done. This all sounds a bit depressingly familiar. Now, is there anywhere else that is liable to be affected next? Are there other systems running Windows XP that we haven't seen compromised yet but that could be 
well over in, in the world as a whole apparently there's still seven percent of the world's pcs are running it in the uk though I'm, I'm sort of rather keeping an eye out to see whether anything happens with hmrc because you know again back in sort of 2014 2015 hmrc was also very dependent on on windows xp machines and you know i'm not again i'm not at all sure as to what what extent they've managed to replace everything with with a newer operating system okay so that's the one to watch out for so you've you've already got the i told you so award from 2014 so we can expect something around 2020 perhaps <laughs> well, it's not something we should be hoping for, certainly. <laughs> that was Emma Woolacott. Next up, there have been a lot of promises thrown around already about the NHS, uh, some of them incredibly detailed, some of them fully costed, some of them not costed, some badly leaked uh, shortly before they were meant to be released, some vague. So, to cut through all of these and get to the bottom of it, I am joined by Private Eye's medical correspondent, Dr Phil Hammond, known in the pages of Private Eye as MD. I started off by asking him for a quick update on how the NHS has been doing since 2010. The A&E crisis has got 900% worse. There's been 5 billion cuts to social care. Spend per patient is down by 9.1%. Nurse vacancy rate up 200%. GP vacancy rate up 500%. NHS waiting is at an eight-year high. Council operations up 37%. Nurse pay cut in real terms is £2,300. The NHS is running a deficit of over £2 billion, and £21 billion is having to be spent on agency stuff because nobody wants to work full-time in the NHS. So it's a disaster, to be honest. I think we're going to have to unpack that a little more. Well, lots of statistics, but I think, I mean, it was, but the thing is, it was all predictable, not just because of the unnecessary car crash of Andrew Lansley's Health and Social Care Act. That was a car crash that should never have happened. Yes. We could probably afford to put a bit more money into health and social care if we wanted to. The fact that we're not doing it is an ideological decision, not a rational one. What's interesting is that they're using Simon Stevens, who is the chief executive of NHS England, almost as a smokescreen. He's someone who's very keen on strategy, so he's come up with a five-year forward view and he's come up with accountable care organisations and sustainability and transformation plans. And he is just a master at coming out with all this wonk that nobody quite understands. But giving the limp assurance that everything's OK, we're all going to roll up our sleeves and, and sort it, whatever happens. And he's sort of the, the smokescreen for the Conservatives. So that, and I mean, I would suspect even if Labour got in, they would keep him on. Interestingly, he was originally um, a Frank Dobson's health advisor, then Tony Blair's. So he right. has connections with both parties and then he went to run united health which is a huge american multinational health corporation which scared everyone but i think the conservatives like to think that he's in charge there's a big argument of how much money they've given him he asked for 10 billion pounds well he asked for 8 billion pounds saying he could make 22 billion pounds worth of savings uh, which is nonsense the government claim they've given him 10 billions but the health select committee says that he's had uh, 4.6 billion so there's a huge lie over who's given them the amount of money okay so let's go back to the Health and Social Care Act. I think the biggest reason that was a disaster is that everybody says health and social care services, primary and secondary care, need to be joined up together. Yeah. They need to be working. Patients need to stop falling in between the cracks in between services. And we've said that, I think, not Agents, only on this yeah, podcast, yeah. but in the magazine yes. as well. Yeah, I think everybody says that. And the trouble with introducing a, more of a competitive market, so I guess you could say Tony Blair opened the door to a competitive tendering and just the Health and Social Care Act really opened it even wider. Which is where 
you're getting different companies bidding against yeah. the NHS and the NHS yeah, so what's bidding for its own services because yes. I think a lot of people won't necessarily know the details. What it means it. is a lot of services, particularly in the community, they haven't quite done it with hospital services, particularly with community services. They're put out to tender every couple of years. And community services are... Well, that can be. In some cases, some GP services are. There's district nurses, out-of-house care, end-of-life care, dropody. Those are things that's really important if we really want to keep people out of hospitals and social services. Yeah, so oh. things outside hospital. Okay, yeah. I see. And everybody says to save any health system, and we need more people treated closer to home in their communities. So you need proper joined-up community services. So those community services are the ones which have been more put out to yes. tender yeah. since the health and social care. Yes. Is that right? That's right. So Virgin, for example, Virgin Care. Virgin is the company that make very bad cola, unsuccessful <laughs> space travel, online gambling, and they now do end-of-life care community care. I don't know why. They're like a little boy at school who put his hand up for everything, saying, I can do that, I can do that. And the Virgin model, I guess, is that Richard Prancel will take a certain percentage off the top of the contract so he can buy another island. And then they try and merge all the services and rationalise the back office functions and make it effective. And they've been running now. They have 400 services in health and social care and local authority. They've been running for seven or eight years. They're yet to make a profit. Okay. And they're now suing the NHS. They just lost their paediatric contract in Surrey. And they're now suing the NHS, having lost their contract. So that's madness. But the bigger madness is there are people now who spend all their time putting things out to tender. And the tenders repeat every two years. So let's have a specific example. We'll say a particular children's contract, because mm. you mentioned mm. Virgin in Surrey just now. So children's services will be specifically children's health, which is non-hospital? Or? Yes, and including the really important stuff like child safeguarding. I mean, keeping people safe, people in the community, issues of abuse and stuff, all that stuff where healthcare and social care have to liaise very closely. Okay, so there will be a given contract yeah. for that. Mm. And who is responsible for putting that out to tender? It's still the NHS? Yes, usually it's the clinical commissioning group. So okay, the, and the clinical commissioning groups. I'm just breaking it down for listeners. They used to be the primary care trust. <laughs> and didn't they, were they something before that? Well, there were family health service authorities. And, yeah, I mean, basically, you are need... They, are they the equivalent of council districts across the country? Is that a close analogy? Yes, and they will probably merge in many areas. So CCGs and councils, because actually most health care... What keeps you healthy is largely the remit of the council, interestingly, having a good house to live in, having good transport, having good education. They're probably more fundamental to your health than the NHS. So there's an argument that the councils and the CCG should merge. And that will probably happen in areas like Manchester, where Andy Burnham has just become the mayor. They're, they're devolving the entire thing and merging everything and hoping everyone will pull it out of one pot. Okay. The danger there is that people take money out of the pain clinic to fill in the potholes. You know, it's, it's a danger yeah. that money will be taken away from health for, for local authority services. But, but you've got these fiefdoms all over the country, yeah, basically, yeah. which have got uh, – they've been allocated pots of money and yes. they then need to put out this – uh, hypothetical children's services mm. contract out to tender. Yes, and some people say the reason they have to is because of European competition law. So it is possible that one intended improvement of Brexit is that no longer we have to comply with European competition law because they've opened the health service to the market, which is what the legislation in the Health and Social Care Act did. But the Health and Social Care Act passed by mm. uh, this government, mm. or rather by the previous Conservative government, mm. it wasn't doing that out of EU-based motivation. no. No, but that was one of the consequences of opening up to a market is that, for example, if I, my local CCG, I just decide to give a, a contract to a local NHS provider because I think they're really good and we've been dealing with them with 20 years, Virgin could say, hang on, we didn't get a chance to tender for that and the legislation they use to force it to court is basically European competition law. So there is an argument that 
I don't think it'll happen, but one of the good consequences of Brexit may be that we don't have to keep saying, oh, European competition law says you have to put it out to tender. Just as we finally found a good consequence yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Okay, so this contract for children's services mm. goes out to tender. Mm. Lots of different firms yeah. bid for it. Can yes. the NHS itself yes. bid for yes, it? Yes, it often does, okay. but usually loses it because the big companies like Virgin, if they're good at something, they're good at winning contracts. So they'll have fantastic PR. And they'll say, we promise to provide better services for the same money and right. make savings for the NHS. Okay. And they give everybody a nice new printer and a new smartphone. And people in the NHS who spent ages on the first generation phones go, oh, new, this is good. Uh, and that's all fine up to a point. But the trouble is they're not doing anything new. They, there's something called tuping. You take over the existing NHS staff who are already running it and you transfer their contracts over to Virgin. So it's the same people running the service. The argument is that Virgin, because they've got more corporate nails and clout, will merge back office functions and do it more efficiently. And there's no evidence yet that they're doing that because they've yet to make a profit, in which case at one their shareholders will come along one day and say, look, you've been running this for seven years, you haven't made any profit, you've got to stop doing it. And they suddenly withdraw from all these contracts and we don't have the infrastructure in the NHS to run them. And that's the big issue with private companies taking over these contracts is that they usually can't make money as they hoped. They very optimistically put in a spangly bid and when they can't make the money, they just say, oh, sorry, we can't do this anymore. Our shareholders say it's not viable. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, as you would expect, the NHS can't make money out of it, nor no. should it, obviously. But no. um, shouldn't think it should be for profit. Yeah, exactly. There isn't much profit so, in incontinence and <laughs> dementia these days. So these firms that go in thinking they mm. can make a profit out of it, you're saying it's uh, effectively it's just too optimistic of them. It is, and then they get very aggressive. So the, what generally happens in the NHS, because people have public service values, is they go above and beyond and they do stuff they're not really paid for. So GPs traditionally have done all sorts of services for their patients that they've never been paid for. Once we start contracting to the private sector, the private sector stick very closely to their contract. The CCGs who aren't great at negotiating, because why should we be? Most of us are GPs, we're just fimbling about, and you know they have administrators too. But the point is, Virgin come in and they cleverly put in a very strict contract, and all of a sudden you realise, oh gee, we haven't contracted for that. And the virgins of this world will say, tough, that's what the contract is, we're sticking very strictly to contract, you haven't included that, you've got to pick up the tab. And that's the other consequence we're finding, is they're very smarter and they're very tougher. Now, you could argue the NHS needs to toughen up a bit and get real, and this is the business world. But there are a lot of dodgy contracts that we suddenly realise, oh, blimey, we didn't ask them to do that, and they're not doing it. Okay, so that is that is one mm. concrete consequence of the mm. Health and Social Care Act. Yeah, and these tenders only last two years, so people spend all their time sitting in office preparing for the next tender in two years' time. Whereas actually things need continuity and things need relationship. And I, I mean, generally things that involve complexity um, don't thrive well in a market system. Right. Oliver Letwin famously wrote a book called Privatising the World. I have this mad vision that you wouldn't be allowed to legally breastfeed unless you put your breasts out to competitive tender <laughs> and, and invited a bid in from the formula milk market. I mean, he, you know, in his view, everything works better in a market system, and it doesn't. Things that involve complexity and compassion and fairness and uncertainty, such as health and education and breastfeeding, I would argue work better in, in a public service. Okay, so that's one consequence. That, that's one thing that we can take from the last seven years yes, going into the, the election. And it's the administrative money. I mean, the, the NHS Action Party or the National Health Action Party have calculated around four and a half billion pounds they think are wasted on administering this competitive market. So all the tendering, the management consultancy, the legal fees. Uh, there's a new organisation called NHS Property Services, which is, is an independent company, takes over all the properties in the NHS and they've made an absolute fudge up and they don't have 
the expertise or the staffing to fulfil their remit. So there are loads of people whose property has transferred from the PCT to the CCG to somebody else to NHS Property Services and they can't develop their practice because NHS Property Services don't know what they're doing. I've had loads of examples of that where it's just a big mess because there are new organisations who just don't understand their remit and it's legally incredibly complex. There have been stories about that, about mm. a GP practice where the property is owned not by the practice and not by the NHS. It's owned by a private yeah. company. Yeah. NHS Property Services Limited. And that's the company in, in yes. every case. Yeah. There were suggestions that those might be shifted, that they might be mm. sold off. Mm. Is that likely? I don't know. I mean, there was an argument recently, and the Daily Mail got hold of this, that we have maybe £100 billion worth of unused NHS properties that we could sell off to fund the NHS. It's not an area I have huge expertise on, but I know for, I've got friends who are lawyers who work in this area who say NHS property services have just aren't up to the job, full stop. So there are lots of these things, that contracts that should be transferred and uh, premises that should be upgraded that aren't happening because NHS property services can't cope with the demand. Right. And it's absolute chaos. But that seems like an area where we do need more administration in order to yes. sort out the, yes. <laughs> the anarchy. But the trouble is that it's not just the administration. You need a stable structure. I think the big problem in my time working in the NHS is there's always been this search for this, the perfect structure of the NHS, and it doesn't exist. You know, you need someone at the top, someone in the middle, and someone on the front line. And because we keep reorganising these things and getting rid of them, and who knows what Labour would do, they'd repeal the privatisation of the NHS. What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to get rid of loads of structures and then create more? I don't know. My money, my money is that everything actually will be pushed over to local authorities, ultimately. Because you can argue that that's accountable, because they have elected councillors and local politicians. And yeah. you could say that's really making the NHS accountable. We're going to put it all over to local authorities. And that would actually get the central government off the hook. They can say, here's the money. You sort it out. Don't hassle me. Because that's really what, that's what really want Jeremy Hunt wants. He, what, he doesn't want any accountability at all. He'd just rather, ooh... We're all going to give it to local authorities. So we come now to Jeremy Hunt. Mm. You were a little bit cagey about him being mentioned before the we started recording this. You said, don't, for God's sake, mention Jeremy Hunt. But in terms of setting policy, mm. has he been setting policy? Has I don't been- think he has, no. And I, he's clearly just the front man for... I mean, he must have realised, I guess, early on that that he was the fall guy... When they, right. you know, to be fair, they you you can say they protected the NHS spend. It's not cut, been cut savagely in the same way as social services okay. and social care has. It's flatlined with a four to six percent increase in demand for services because we're living longer with the things that previously killed us, and right. not realizing that these two are inextricably linked. So if you make cuts in social care and you can't discharge people from hospital or you can't keep them well in their homes, it's going to impact on the NHS. And everyone predicted it was a car crash. And I guess it's just that political thing of pretending everything's fine when it's clearly not. And the thing about the NHS when you're health secretary is there are so many brilliant, dedicated people. You can always find examples of really great things happening in the NHS because really great people work in the service and they try really hard. So as a politician, you, when someone's asked you a difficult question, you can say, yes, but I was in this hospital the other day and everything's fantastic. And of course, there will always be examples when things are going well. But the argument is from an evidence-based point of view, has the policy and the funding of the NHS under this administration improved the service or not? And I would say it's made it noticeably worse. Well, the extraordinary statistics you read out at the beginning, you know, the number of vacancies, for one, the number of people Mm. thinking about getting out of the NHS. Mm. Uh, You wrote in a recent column that 42% of EU staff currently working in the NHS are thinking about leaving. Yeah, I mean, they're bound to because of the uncertainty. I mean, those are stupid things. You should have guaranteed the rights of EU workers, particularly in health and social care. We're over 100,000, so, you know, about half and half split between health care and social, social care. 
And we absolutely rely on them. And many of them have made their homes here thinking they could stay forever. And the uncertainty of not knowing whether they can stay. I mean, they may well stay. The other equally shocking statistic is when Jeremy Hunt fought his unnecessary war with the junior doctors, the one thing you never do in a system that's run on goodwill, where people go above and beyond for no money, is to go to war with the workforce. It's stupid. And I'm not saying the BMA covered themselves with glory either, but he didn't need to dangle his balls over the balcony of the BMA. And the consequence of that, which was predictable, is that now half of the junior doctors who finished their, their early training, their foundation years training, are not immediately proceeding into higher specialist training. Now, none, not all of them ever did. Often them, they took a break because they were knackered. But increasingly now I talk to them and they say, I just refuse to work in a health service under Jeremy Hunt. So he's really politicised a generation of junior doctors that I've never known. There was always a few disparate mavericks like me when I was growing up. But, you know, most people just got on with it. Now they're actually quite politically aware and they say, I don't trust that man. I'm not working in a service under him. Uh, and he looked, he was on Andrew Marr the other day and he looked as shifty and as cagey and as awkward as I think I've ever seen. But I guess he's a multimillionaire. He doesn't really need to. I often wonder why he's doing it. Mm. <laughs> If he doesn't need to... He doesn't need all that hassle. I don't know. He is our longest-standing health secretary. Really? And the interesting story about Nye Bevan is that we've, we've always had problems with underfunding in the NHS. We pretend it's a recent crisis, right. but going right back to the very beginning when Nye Bevan founded it, and there's a great story. An old uh, doctor told me this. That when all the soldiers came back from the war, they said, oh, one of the good things we can give you, you can now get a free sight test on the NHS. So they said to all these old soldiers, you better go and get your eyes tested free on the NHS. And all the soldiers went, I can't hear you because they were deaf from the shelling. So we had to go and give them hearing tests first. And they all had hearing aids, which we hadn't budgeted for, hadn't thought of that. We give them the hearing aids. We say, go and get your eyes tested. They go and get their eyes tested on the NHS. They get their new NHS spectacles. They look in the mirror and they go, shit, these teeth are awful. <laughs> so we had to give them dentures. Now, we'd only budgeted for glasses, and we had to give them hearing aids and dentures too. <laughs> the NHS was several hundred million pounds in debt in its first few years. We introduced prescription charges, and Nye Bevan resigned because he said that was against the ethos of the NHS. Yeah. So this argument about how much money we put into the NHS has been going on ever since its inception, 69 years ago. But we only really briefly, when, when Lord Winston's mother allegedly fell out of bed and she, he calls her hoo-ha and the new statesman and Tony Blair went on GMTV to say he was going to match EU funding. We had a glorious few years where we threw money at the NHS. Some of it wasted, to be honest, because he also in, insisted on market system and competition. But we had some times we actually got waiting lists down we got down to 18 weeks and we were treating people quickly. And we're heading back to those long waits of the 80s now where people are queuing in corridors and dying on waiting lists. And that's what worries me is that there are a lot of people, particularly the people with the silent voices with mental health issues, who simply can't get humane health care quickly. And that's a disaster. Yes, and that's one of the few things. We're recording this just before the manifestos come mm. out, so we're in a slightly policy-free mm. zone at the moment. But one of the speeches Theresa May has already made this campaign is saying that mental health needs a complete overhaul, mm. that every school needs a you know a mental health guardian or champion, mm. someone who people can talk to, particularly young people. Uh, she's saying we're going to stop loads of unnecessary detention mm. under the Mental Health Act. What is the likelihood of all this happening? I don't know, but the first thing I say is I'm glad she's talking about it. I mm -hmm. think that's good that you've got somebody who's happy to talk about it. But to be honest, so did Cameron. And people have for a long time have talked about parity of esteem, which is really interesting, between mental health and physical health. Okay. The most interesting thing about mental ill health is that people die younger, considerably younger, with mental illness, but from physical illnesses. So here's the thing. People who have mental illness are more likely to have physical illnesses, and that's because there may be links to depression and heart disease. It's also because if you're on tranquilizers, you tend to smoke to stay awake. 
Uh, and it's also because people with mental ill health are often dismissed, their physical symptoms are often dismissed as being part of their mental ill health rather than angina. So lots of complex reasons, but people with mental ill health have appalling physical health too, and that's really important to remember. You shouldn't really separate physical and mental health. It should be holistic, but I'm glad they're talking about it. Yes, they're going to introduce another 10,000 mental health staff, they've pledged to do, but they didn't say who these staff were. And they've already, since 2010, we're six, over 6,000 nurses down in mental health and about 25 doctors down. So they didn't say whether that 10,000 would be... Nurses, uh, doctors, administrators. They didn't say who they were yeah. and whether that 10,000 would be on top of the ones that have already been lost. So whether it was going to be 16,000, whether we're going back to 2010 levels, or if it's going to be 10,000 on top of the 6,000 we've lost, which is only 4,000, that sort of classic Tory accounting. But I mean, I, I'm glad they're talking about it, but I don't... You know, realistically, services are being so slashed back. I work in children's mental health, one of the areas I work in. And one of the consultants who works for CAMS, which is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, he says, I see kids who are self-harming all the time and I don't have the stuff to deal with them and I have to prioritise the suicide risk. Is the person who's just started self-harming more likely to be a suicide risk than the person who's been doing it for two years? And those complex decisions are in people's intros every day as they are in social services and all the rest of it. So the bottom line is that there are people having to risk manage really complex stuff in their intray and decide, well, this is the one I think safer. And then occasionally a baby Peter will slip through the net because you didn't see it coming. So the, you know, the complexity on the front line is really stressful. So I'm glad they're talking about it. I would be surprised if they can do anything about it quickly. But their commitment in 2015 was to make the NHS the safest and most compassionate health service in the world. And it's clearly gone backwards. So you could argue that these pledges are not even when they are evidence-based, they're not substantiated by evidence in the longer term because they don't happen. It seems also that the, the ship takes so long to turn around mm. and that um, we had a lot of pledges about recruitment you know, mm. back in 2010. Mm. But obviously it takes so long to you train. You can't grow doctors doctor. on trees, yeah. yeah. You have to train them and then to further specialise in general practice or other specialties takes longer. And then if all the junior doctors are now taking time out because mm. they don't like the health secretary or they're too knackered, then that delays it even further. So it's not going to happen within a five-year cycle. So I'd be very surprised if, in five years' time, there have been huge improvements in mental health care. And I suppose given the the five years it takes minimum, is it five years to train a junior doctor yeah, before even years, the... Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the 2010 was mm. a time when we were just about to kick off with the, the big austerity drive. Mm. So are these results that we're seeing now results of what was happening then? Yes, I think probably they are, yeah. I think it probably does take that time to kick into the system. The, but the other thing that they're all promoting, including local authorities are promoting, are trying to get people to take self-responsibility. That's really interesting. So saying that, you know, well, 70% of what determines your health, a little bit is genetically determined. Most of it actually is determined about your life, your life circumstances, housing, schools, and your personal behaviour. So that's the slightly conservative thing, is that can you encourage people to be self-responsible, to, you know, not get ill in the first place? And I think that's interesting too, is that, you know, you the gap between uh, healthy living between the healthiest who not only live 10 years longer than the least healthy in this country but they have almost 20 years of high quality health living so poor people who not only die younger often battle with unpleasant chronic diseases for 20 years whereas healthy people live completely symptom free and are happy as Larry and that's the huge inequality and we have the same inequalities as America in America they have child death rates in some of their cities that were shame African cities it's extraordinary and the reason we're not America is we have the NHS as a safety net that treats people according to need, not their ability to pay. So the repealing of the Obama Act in America could be a huge disaster for poor people in that population. 
But the, the thing is, even though you have those inequalities, are there things you can do in communities to encourage people to live well so that they can get exercise and their fruit and veg and mm-hmm. encourage to come off smoking? And that's maybe one of the advantages of devolving decisions down to local authorities and things because the argument is that you know what's going on in your population and where to put the cycle paths and you know, yeah so that may not be a bad thing you? if that does if that does come to pass yeah i mean i didn't i didn't actually even mind cameron's talk about big societies i think a lot of it you know the health of the nhs and social care is crucially dependent on the health of the communities it serves so this idea of rekindling your community and and probably the biggest issue of all is social isolation so elderly people living on their own we know is as bad for you as 15 cigarettes a day there are people who go for months without human contact and touch and love and laughter and that's actually what we, irrespective of who gets into power, should be dealing with. We, you know, people. I live in Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency. My vote is meaningless. <laughs> was that, we actually had a Labour constituency when I joined it, and now he's got a huge majority. My vote is pointless. So I adopted what I call a B-Day approach from the bottom up, and I try and do stuff <laughs> within the community that improves people's health, irrespective of how they vote. I don't really care about the, the, the party politics of it. I care about getting people healthier. And we just know communities themselves, if they rekindle, can do huge amounts to improve their health. Yeah. It's very interesting. Whenever you're on the podcast, mm. it's, you know, it, it, it all sounds pretty bad. Mm. But it, I mean, it, and it always sounds pretty bad. It always sounds like there's, you know, there is never enough money, as you were saying, going mm. back to the 40s. You know, is, is more money via taxation, is that the only answer? You no, know, it's I mean, not the only answer, no. And that, I mean, my argument with the... I love the NHS and I love this idea of putting our money in the centre and pulling it according to need because, in essence, you're saying to people you don't know, I love you, but when you get sick, you can have some of my money. Yeah. And that's a good... But the trouble with a prepaid system is that too many... It, it fosters reliance on the system and too many people treat it as an all-you-can-eat breakfast bar. Prepay as in paying we by pay tax taxes. Tax, so if it's free at the front door, part. people yeah. go, oh, I'll pay for this. I'll, it's like going to the breakfast bar, isn't it? I have two of those. <laughs> like a couple of those, doctor, while you're here. I'll have one of those blue disabled badges, if you don't mind. I'll have a couple of the other. So there is a tendency for some people to do that. Now, the, the culture should be, we should be really proud every day we don't use the NHS. Every day we don't need to use it. Somebody who has a really awful life who does need it benefits. So it's not that we prepay it and use it. We prepay it and then say this is the most precious resource to hand on to our future generations. So we need to really make sure we don't overuse it. And so that's the way that I look at it. It's, yeah, so it's not just about the money. It's about our self-responsibility. That was MD, a.k.a. Phil Hammond. Thanks very much to him. You can read his column in this week's Private Eye, along with hundreds of other columns, so do pick up a copy. That's all from us. We will be back again next fortnight with another episode of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.